Uh, man, I love to worship, man. I tell you what. Have you ever noticed that every scriptural account of um, heaven has either dancing or music in it? I know some of you are going, no, not dancing. No, no, I'm serious, man. The angels with six wings flying around the throne, that was a dance. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about the biblical attributes of dancing. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk a little bit about perichoresis. And I know you're sitting there going, oh yeah, I've always wanted to talk about perichoresis. And you're like, what is that? It's Greek to me, Michael. And you nailed the language. That's exactly what it is. So, belong, believe, become. We start when we choose to belong. We live when we choose to believe. And we thrive when we choose to become. And so this morning, as we walk into this message together, and that's what's happening this morning. This isn't just you getting to listen to a talk from some guy who may have a joke every so often that's mildly humorous. We're walking into a moment together. And that's what I need you to understand. This is a congregational moment, a community moment, a communion of sorts where we enter an eternal moment with our Father God, His Son Jesus Christ, and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, we belong together. God has brought us to this moment together. And from this moment, we're going to make choices and decisions about who we belong to, who we are, about our identity and our choices. And this is for all of you. I mean, some of you are, uh, maybe you're younger. Maybe you're, I don't know what young is nowadays. I'm old enough to everybody's young, anyone younger than me is young. And so I look at 40 years old, 40 year olds and go, man, you don't know what the next decade's bringing. But it, I just want you to know, we, we're all here together. You could be eight years old and you're in this room with us. We're in this moment together. I want you to be a part of us today. And I'll try not to say anything stupid, but I'm, I'm older and I say dumb things sometimes. But I want us to join this, member, this moment because as we talk about belonging, I want you to understand how important it is. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in what I call the buckle of the Bible belt. Christianity is everywhere. You've heard of church on every corner? There's churches on every acre where I come from. There are churches where there are no people. I'm not kidding. There are churches in the middle of, uh, on the edge of cornfield. Someone built a church on their farm decades ago, and there's a little church, and people still go to it every Sunday. They are everywhere. And Christianity, where I come from, oh, I, please don't take this wrong. It's cultural. What do I mean by that? I. Last year, not this year at Inside Connection, but last year at Inside Connection, I got a chance to talk with Jared Folks, who I used to be his pastor. Now he's a pastor. God sent him to the south, and he sent me to the west. So God did a, some kind of trade program. I don't know how that works. I don't know if the angels have cards or something. This guy preached a fiery sermon, and this one, oh, never mind. So, uh, so I was talking to him, because I started ministry. I spent 10 years of ministry in the Bible Belt. And we were talking about the reality of how in the South, in the Bible Belt, 
you, you have to help people discover that they're lost before they can ever get found because Christianity is so cultural. So on my sabbatical this year, one of my sons started introducing me to country music. Please, no, no applause or booze, either one. Okay, I don't want either one. I don't want to hear it. I don't care what you think, all right? And so I did. I listened to a few, and I, a few I really enjoyed. Uh, Brothers Osborne. Let me see this couple. Luke Combs. He's got one called uh, Doing This. I love that song. They got a song that kind of reminded me of my dad that I enjoyed. I uh, listened to some Hardy. I don't know if you guys listen to country. Sam Barber. Jelly Roll's album, Witsit Chapel. It, I'm telling you, it broke me. I'm not kidding. I listened to that album and wept. And I know you're going, ah. And I know you're going, well, he's got, Jelly Roll uses some colorful language. I probably curse all the time in Spanish or something and don't even know it. So I'm not even going to worry about it. No, I would in Spanish because I used to work, I used to be the boss of a lot of Latino people. So I actually know all the Spanish profanity. So let's not say that. That's not a good example. They were called, I was called them. That was my name. Anyway, so uh, I'm telling you though, I listened to Jelly Roll's album, What's at Chapel? And... I wish there, there are times I listen to artists and I'm like, I wish I could talk to you. I wish I could have a conversation with you. See, in the Bible Belt, these country artists come out and they sing and their songs have lines in them. And the, how I've heard it referred to most frequently in the last year is amazing grace. Someone got amazing grace. And then I listen to the lyrics of the song and I think to myself, you have no idea what amazing grace is. Yeah. To you... It's an epiphany you had, which those are nice, that became something that hangs off the mirror of your truck, or a sticker that goes on your car, or a t-shirt that you have, and your amazing grace does not equal daily being loved and adored by your Father. That amazing grace is an accessory, and that's the culture I grew up in. When religion becomes cultural, it's no longer powerful. It's just understood. It's, what, it's, it's an assumption that everybody lives around and up on, but it doesn't have any impact on their lives. And so um, if you're like me and you want to know what millennials and Gen Z are thinking about church today, Listen to Witsit Chapel album with those ears, and you will weep as I did. So, <clears throat> that being said, this ain't a game. It never was, it never will be. Some of the things that make me angry as a pastor is when people treat church like high school. And they start trying to build cliques, and they start trying to... Um, use grapevines and gossip to get their way that makes me very angry and if you want to see my impatient carnal side i have a name for him that i'm not giving to you but uh, then all you have to do is treat church like high school because this ain't no game and i'm using ain't on purpose because i want you to hear it this is real every sunday morning every worship song every prayer every end of the service every time we set the cross out and we do an event do something around that every communion everything we do with our community every fun thing we do everything we do with kids 
All of it is for a purpose. It's a battle to help someone understand and see that they are dearly loved and greatly enjoyed by God. And that belief, accepting and walking in that belief, will change your life. That identity as dearly loved and greatly enjoyed will encompass, overcome, and wipe out every other identity. Some of you are struggling with who you are. Maybe you're in school or headed to college and you're like, I don't know who I am. And I'm here to tell you today, this is my job every Sunday, every chance I get. Here's who you are. You are the dearly loved, greatly enjoyed son of God and bride of Christ. That's who you are above all else. That's where belonging begins. This is radical. Christianity has to be radical. Radical is like a 90s word, I guess. I don't know what would be better than the term radical, like awesome, crazy, nuts. I mean, it's just, it's radical. God, you know why? Because God is radical. God is God himself. God is nuts. I mean, I saw a, a meme last year making fun of Trinitarianism and it, it said that it had this picture of this car that you couldn't tell where the front was, the back was, or the door was. And it says, this is Trinitarianism. And they were making fun of people like me. But then I got to thinking, if you think you can explain God, I'm not the one in error here. If you think you can capture God's essence and you can comprehend God, you, you oh, I don't know what level you're working on. And so I want you to know that God and I mean, his, his kids aren't just nice, they're holy and they're loving and they're powerful, but God, 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 Jesus said the father and I are one. That's what he said in John chapter 10, verse 30, Isaiah says of God that for I alone am God, I am God and there is no one like me. So this is why God's hard to explain. Because you have these Old Testament guys trying to understand God. They don't have the capacity to do so because they're not the son of God. And so they're writing what they're getting, the revelation they're getting. I'm God, there's no one like me. And then Jesus comes along and he's blowing up everybody's paradigms. The Father and I, we're one. Then it goes on to say, Ephesians 4 verse 3. I want, I'm, I'm, go, I'm headed to something we're going to talk about tr the Trinity just a little bit, but I'm coming at it sideways because I love to shock people if I can. But I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Follow along closely. In the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called into one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. That passage I just read just listed seven things. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And it's telling you that they're all one. These seven things are not seven things. They're one thing. One spirit, one body, one father. It's all the same thing. That's what Ephesians, what Paul is telling you. Then in Revelations, 
I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to skip this one. This, it just mentions the sevenfold spirit of God. Let me jump over that one. There's seven or one. Back into Ephesians 5.31, look at this. The scriptures say, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in, what's that last word? Well, at least I know you're here. Thank you. That's good. One. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you. I may not have God wrapped around my finger. I may not have uh, a, the perfect understanding of who God is. But I do know this. I know that somehow in eternity and in the kingdom, many things have the power to be one thing. And so when he talks about the body, the spirit, the father, the son, the Lord, and yet they're one thing. And when he talks about a husband and wife who have ability to be one thing. So when I read passages that say that you're, the Lord your God is one God, I realize that idea can be loaded because my wife and I are also one. And yet we're very different. I mean, she's really different. <laughs> God is a one greater than any one you could ever comprehend. Do you understand that? Just like when God takes two, a husband and wife, and makes them one, that one becomes greater than the sum of the two that formed it. That one becomes greater than the sum of the two. But they're still one. And so it is the same with the Father. And so however you're struggling with your understanding and comprehension of God, I just want you to wrap your head around, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to not be sure. It's okay to, to learn and to grow and to ask God. All those things are okay. As long as you understand this, God's greater than you can imagine and more than you can understand. Now, I mentioned earlier this weird Greek word called per perichoresis, which was how someone about uh, 1,700 years ago tried to capture who God is. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a simple definition of perichoresis. It's circle dance. You ever danced in a circle? You guys watching online? Don't get dizzy. Yeah. With someone? So here's what I believe about God uh, based on my understanding of scripture. The Bible says in the beginning, and God created the world. The word God there is the word Elohim. It's a plural word. It means gods, divine rulers. Now, those who don't agree with the Trinity would argue that, that it doesn't mean that it's plural. It just was an old Hebrew word that was used to, de to denote divinity. It's hard to put denote and divinity in the same phrase. I shouldn't have tried that. I think I sprang a tongue muscle. <clears throat> but based on how I read Genesis 1-1, where God is over the waters and God spoke, and John tells us that the Jesus is the word of God. And then the next verse tells us that the spirit moved over the waters. I believe that there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a circle dance. Because I think heaven always has music and singing and dancing. 
I believe that because I'm beginning to see how much of life is, is frequencies and how that heaven is the tune of everything. Everything should be tuned to heaven. So, God is really radical and different, and Jesus is really radical and different, and we are really radical and different. Romans 12, verse 5. So it is with Christ's body, we are many parts of one body, and we all belong to one another. I love that song, House of Miracles, we just sang. And here's how, here's how God hit me with it this morning. I love how that we come together and worship, and then God just starts to speak. I hope that happens for you. And I was, I was listening to a sing, and actually we, they, were, they were practicing earlier, and I might have gotten excited. And, um, and I began to think of the miracles in this room, but not the context of the miracles that you've experienced, but the miracles that you are. How many of you guys have had a miracle in your life that was actually a string of several miracles? That's what we need in this building, by the way. Just I'll throw that out there. That's what we need. We need a string of miracles, okay? So what if every church is, every person is a miracle and they work in tandem and cooperation with and fellowship with all the miracles around them and every gathering, every event, every outreach, every fellowship, all those things, people come and they mingle, they connect, they congregate, all those things that they do. And then they start bumping up against miracles. And God uses the miracle over here that's Steve and the miracle that's Christy and the miracle that's Rick. And God, through all these seemingly small miracles, begins to produce a major miracle. What if a house of miracles isn't just about the things that God does, but the fact that God is doing through the people in the house? If you began to think that way, you would stop thinking you were worthless. You would stop seeing yourself as someone who can't really do anything and has no real purpose. You would start to see yourself as someone who's like a glove on the hand of God and every day becomes for you and, and awaiting for God to do something cool slash awesome, possibly miraculous. And by the way, how many times has someone done something for you that for them seemed very small, but for you was a miracle? It's happened to me many times. Someone just being themselves, just some, that's just how they live and breathe. And they walk into my life and bam, they gave me a miracle. A house of miracles. Crazy. Crazy. So Jesus is also radical. Many parts of a body become one and so forth. So I have a one point sermon today. Don't get excited. God is radical. God has always been in relationship. That's what the Trinity is about for me. God's never been alone. God was not sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs going, I'm bored. That was not who he is. Because God, he was having some kind of circle dance. 
Before anything existed, before Lucifer was created, before any of the angels, or any, anything was created, God was having a great time being God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were loving being themselves. They were loving their strength, their energy, their light, their power. They loved it. And you know what happens when people love being in love and they love each other? Do you know what happens when that happens between two people? Kids show up. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Let me theologicalize this. That's not a word. Creativity happens. And God was so enjoying being God and so loving being God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God created. And he said, let there be light. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I am so excited to talk about light right now. And it's all I can do to not teach that. But I'm not. I've got to teach this first. Or that won't make sense. And so the Father has always been in relationship. And he's loved relationship. And he has a relationship with the Son and with the Spirit. And he created you for a relationship. He put Adam... And Eve in that garden. And what did God do when he put him in the garden? I think part of us think that God just like, okay, here you go. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Let's see what happens. That's how I parent. That is not how God parents. How do we learn in Genesis? How did God, how did God father Adam and Eve? Every day. He comes to the garden and he walks with them. He's in relationship with them. They're talking about things. They're connecting with God. That was God's heart. And then what happened? You're like, well, Adam sinned. And then God couldn't stand Adam anymore. That is what religion taught you. That is not what the Bible taught you. Religion taught you that as soon as Adam sinned, God's like, anathema, I can have nothing to do with him. But there's one major problem with that. He showed up for the walk. Do you understand that? Adam sinned, Eve sinned, God knew they sinned. God wasn't scratching his head. Gee, I wonder where Adam went. He knew where Adam was. Adam was the one who hid from the walk. Adam was the one who imagined God to be other than God was. Adam was the one who imagined God to be a tyrant and a punisher and harsh. That was Adam's imagination. That was not who the Father was. It's still not who the Father is. It's never been who the Father was. And I know some of you are struggling with that idea. Good, you need to. And while you're struggling with the goodness of God in the face of our sin, I want to remind you of a guy named Enoch who walked with God. And then he just went home with God. So before you decide that God can't stand humans because they're sinful, you need to remember a guy named Enoch who chose to show up for the walk with God anyway, even though he had problems and sin in his life. And because he showed up for the walk, Enoch just went home with the father one day. I wonder what would have happened if Adam had just showed up for the walk. 
And I wonder why, like Adam, we hide behind our fig leaves of foolishness and don't show up for the walk. And I know you're sitting there going, Michael, because of my sin, because of the things I've done wrong, because of my mistakes. I get it. That is a major problem that has been dealt with. And if Enoch, before that solution ever developed in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if Enoch could walk with God without any Holy Spirit power, then what is possible for us who have the power of God placed in us by the gift of Jesus when we believe? I hope your, I hope your horizons just expanded. But if they haven't, don't worry. I'm like a dog with a bone on this. I'm not going to let go. So, Jesus is radical, and I want to challenge us to live in relationship as God lives in relationship with God and with each other. Did um, do any of you guys remember the front porch? I guess some of you guys, how many of you have a front porch on your house right now? Just, just little, subtle, okay, all right, you can put them down. How many of you use your front porch, like regularly sit on your front porch and harass your neighbors? All right, okay, good, perfect, that's good. So when I grew up, the idea of a back deck was not a thing. That did not exist. In fact, you know, back door was for the family that's where we ran the kids out of when people came in the front door. We had a room in our very small house that you were not allowed to sit in. Did anyone else have that growing up? It was the living room, and no one could sit in the living room. Why did they call it the living room? Because no one lived there. It was, we had this little tiny house. I shared a room with my brother, and there's this whole nicely appointed, nice furniture room that I can't go in. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's me. Sorry, not my past. That's my counseling, not your thing. Okay, so my point is, the world used to be front porches. And here's why. Well, we didn't have Facebook to steal hours of our time. We had three channels on the TV, and only one of those came in clear, and nothing good was on that channel. Okay? And so we had these folding lawn chairs with this vinyl webbing stuff, that my grandparents did. They set it on the front porch, and in the evenings, once the workday was done, you had dinner and you went and you sat in the front porch and you hoped, you hoped, even if you lived in the middle of the country, you hoped someone would walk by so you could annoy them. I mean, entertain yourself. <clears throat> that was American community 50, 70 years ago. What's happened? I am actually surprised any of you use your front porch because now what people do, because we're so overwhelmed and overstimulated by life, when we come home, we typically come inside of our doors and close off the world, go to our back decks at some point inside of our privacy fenced backyard, and we try not to have relationship. I do it. I'm not, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm the same. I'm just, I can't handle all the people in the world. I know God loves people because he made a bunch of them. <laughs> and I'm in Wyoming. This is like the, leastly pop, the, the least populated state in the union. 
When I go back to Tennessee, where town, like entire towns are six inches apart, I get, ah, I'm like, leave me alone. And I say, what's wrong with you? Anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that's me reliving it. So what I want to do is I want to encourage you today, and I learned this from my wife, some of my best lessons I've learned from my spouse. I want to encourage you to move toward relationship. I am not going to hit the time marker today. Hug yourself. You're all in this together. (laughs) So, 15 years ago when God gave us Cayman, soon, soon be 16 years ago. And... I mean, for, for many times throughout that six to 15 years of his life, I have wondered, God, what's your plan here? What's going on? What, what are you trying to teach me? What do I need to learn here? And so, it's really frustrating raising a special needs child, as many of you probably know, and some of you work with special needs children, because they don't react to overstimulation like you do. And so here's what happens often in our world is that something will trigger, for lack of a better word, Cayman. And when that happens, we freeze. Everything stops. This isn't true for, Cayman doesn't work like every other special needs kid, but this is how Cayman works. So everything stops and he freezes. Okay. That does not work for me. I mean, I'm not that guy. I mean, I'm, I have a schedule. I have places to be. I have stuff for him to do. Okay? And so as soon as he gets triggered and we're here, I'm trying to control. My voice elevates, and I'm going to try and make him do what I think is the right thing for him to do. So as you can tell, I have some gray hair going on. (laughs) This beard used to be a glorious amber red. Now it's totally white. And all the while, instead of of asking Father, man, if we could learn to do this, what do I need to learn here? I'm trying to control. And so I'm in a situation of conflict And I'm moving toward control. And it's not working. It doesn't work. Threats don't work. Punishment doesn't work. It doesn't work. Everything, once you've had seven kids, you're like, I think I know how this works. And then God gives you an eighth, and you're like, I'm an idiot. I know nothing. So my wife, last year, She's reading a book, or maybe it's two years ago, she's reading a book about about how to work with our son in particular. And this is the line she pulls out of the book. Move toward the relationship. Move toward the relationship. That's not what we do in conflict, is it? That's not what Americans do. That's not what Westerners do. When there's conflict, we don't move close 
we walk away and slam a door if at all possible. And if there were a door slamming app on the phone, I could probably make money. <laughs> Boom, slam. So this morning, let me show you, I'm the, I do have the potential to learn. So this morning, and this, this is what the Father has taught me. All right, he shut down. Something triggered. He shut down in kids' church, and we needed him out here. So I went, and I called my son to me, but he shut down. So I get my son, and I put my arm in his arm, and he let me walk him out of the room. And then we went to the hallway. This happened this morning. God wanted this in the message, I know it. We went to the hall- hallway, and I brought my son into my chest. And Father has taught me this, and I, I can tell you how later, but, and I pull this head to my heart, because I'm emitting a frequency from there. Yeah. I'm a tuning fork. And I pull this head into my heart, and I just hold my son for a minute. I don't say anything. I don't have any criticisms. I don't want him to do anything. All I want him to do is inhabit this moment with me. And isn't that what relationship is? Isn't relationship about inhabiting moments together, moments that we're both in? And so I hold him, and, and the Father has taught me how to do this. I pull him in. Our heart, he hears my heart for him. <gasps> I know this is how the Father loves us. I know that when you're struggling and you're hurting and you're panicked, this is what the Father wants to do. He wants to pull your head to His heart. And He wants you to hear and feel His heart for you. Just like John at the table at the Last Supper, and John is leaning on the the chest of Jesus, hearing the Master's heart beat for him. No wonder John was the only one, the first one to figure out that I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Because he, he put his head to the heart of the Master. And so I am finally, after 36 years of being a dad, learning how to be a father. And I brought my son's head to my chest and we breathed. We did some breathing. I asked him to take a deep breath a few times. And then I asked him to look at me and then I asked him to smile. And if he doesn't smile, I say, well, smile with your butt. (laughs) And that usually breaks it loose. Sorry if that was inappropriate for any of you. <laughs> My family's not yours. What can I say? <laughs> and then we were able to move on. Move toward relationship. A lot of you haven't found your place in the body of Christ yet because you don't want to find it yet. I get it. No criticism, no judgment. I'm just saying, let's be honest. Sometimes we don't step up because we don't want to. And to a point, that's okay. But I'm asking you this morning for something. 
Every Sunday I ask for something. And today, I'm asking to move toward relationship. Now, moving toward relationship, moving toward the joy of relationship, I know isn't easy, but it's pretty simple. First of all, it's about proximity. It's about actually coming close to someone else. The Bible says in Romans 12, 9, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what's wrong, hold tightly to what's good. Do you know that there are people in town that you've never met, you could be going here for five years, there are people you've never met and they call Ordinary Faith their church home. Did you know that? It used to crack me up. Um, before I came to Ordinary Faith, I used to, if I ever went to a new church, I'd try and visit people on the church rows because that's something that we had. And it always cracked me up. I would go knock on the door, say, hey, I'm Michael, pastor at such and such a church. And it always made me laugh because often people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I go to that church. And I'd say, oh, I haven't met you yet. And they'd say, oh, yeah, that's my church. And then five years later, I still would never have seen them come inside church. Here's why that's so. It is so easy to love people from afar. Man, I love Ordinary Faith. That's a great church. I love it down there. Man, they're great people. Do you go? Uh, no. I don't know if I love them that much. You ever met someone, they loved the whole world, but they would knife their neighbor. <laughs> cut their tires or something. You know why? It's easy to love people from afar. That's not love. That's an idea of love. That's a hope that you might be able to love, uh, but it's not actually love. Here's what love is. Love is coming close. It is. Love is being able to see people and know people and belong with people. That, that's what we're here to do. And so uh, we just need to realize that if you're going to belong somewhere, there actually has to be some proximity. You're, there has to be some routine and some uh, regularity to connecting with the people in this place. Yeah. Pretty simple. It's about proximity. I don't know if I'll get into trouble today or not. Well, let's see. Let's keep going. Oh, yeah, this is where I'm going to get in trouble. Romans 12, 10. I knew it was somewhere. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. I want to preach a whole message on honoring each other, but I think I already have, but it's one that we need to hear a lot. I think most people prefer intellectual religions because they're afraid to feel anything. Now, I want you to read sometime if you're if you like if you, well, you know, I know the worship songs and so forth, but I prefer to get in the word. I also love to get into the word. But I also want my heart to live and breathe. John Eldridge talks about in his book Wild at Heart how uh, how most Christian men have basically killed their own emotions, made it impossible for them to feel. And I want you to understand that in order to belong, you're going to have to let that go. Emotions are part of the package. God made you to be an emotional being. And, and, and I don't want to sound, make this sound too harsh, but too many people prefer an intellectual, academic-only religion because they're afraid to feel anything. Not because that's right. You should have a faith that can feel. 
that can live, that can breathe, that can love and care about the people around you, that can have some passion in it. Too many people have settled for consistency and lost their fire in the process. And our God's a consuming fire. And we are part of that fire, but that's another message for another time. So we need to learn to connect with our emotions with each other. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, God gave me something this morning. We need to realize that we need people in our lives that might not be our first choice. Have you ever considered that a lot of your best friends may not be calling the best out of you? They may actually just be codependents with you? Think about it. How many people do we choose to have in our life just because they're comfortable? Is that really how you want to live your life? With as little stress as possible? Because I'm going to tell you, all the good things in life have some stress attached to them. All the things that are truly rewarding and are rich in life, they have some stresses connected to them. And so I think there's a lot of codependency in the church today, actually. I think a lot of people do things because they need to be needed, not because they're loved by their father. And so I want to challenge all of us to move into a place of relational and emotional health, to draw close to people in proximity, but also emotionally connect with people and be known and know. And don't be afraid. And not, yes, yes, you'll get hurt. The, the point is not to not get hurt. Not not getting hurt doesn't grow you, doesn't heal you, doesn't strengthen you. It is the conflicts that make it worth doing. I don't know how many of you are married, but it's amazing to me, it's frustrating to me, how that the worst conflicts in our marriage are right at the moment that we have a major breakthrough in our relationship. I hate that. Why can't this be easy? But we've given birth to eight children. Birth was really hard on her. I was the cheerleader. I had a bruise on my hand every time because she squeezed really hard. I mean, it's tough. And I mean, men suffer too. I had a cold once and that was pretty close to birth. Birth is a challenging, powerful, deeply emotional experience. It's worth every second of it. To look at a new life that God has created as a man, as a, in the womb of the person that I adore more than anyone on this planet, is beautiful. So, move closer to each other and let your heart live. And I know there will be drama because people equal drama. And it's worth it. It's worth it. But also, move together spiritually. Not long after we had begun meeting at the senior center, we were working on a very um, outreach event 
event for the gateway, what we call the gateway service, which is this service. And I remember one morning I'm teaching on what we're doing and, and the Holy Spirit, it wasn't even in my, in my notes, but the Holy Spirit just said, hey, don't forget that what you're doing here is spiritual in nature. Because I don't know about you, but, it, but for me, I can get so engaged in the tasks that need to be accomplished and the things that need to be done that I forget that this is not, everything we do has, it's not human effort based. It's based on the Spirit of God. And I remember saying that. You have to remember that churches are fundamentally spiritual in nature. And it was like a light went on all the way across the room. It was a very cool Sunday. And I want you to understand that about us. We are a spiritual body of believers. We are not a social justice club. We're not a church club. We're not any of those things. We are spiritual in nature. We're the body of Christ. We are a glove on the hand of the Father. And we all have different parts that we play in that reality. And so the fact that it's spiritual and that we're actually the temple of God, all each of us constructed into a, a living, breathing temple of God, we need to remember that we should be spiritual about it. I mean, things like we should pray for each other. We should worship together. We should reflect together. But we need to be comfortable we need to be comfortable with prayer. I'll just, there's a lot I could say, but let me just hone in right there. We just need to be comfortable praying for each other and with each other. And the enemy fights that. Oh, the enemy hates it when God's kids pray. He hates it when husbands and wives pray. I, I, I can't even... I can't even make it large enough for you. If you are married, uh, you have a covenant together, pray together. Just do it. Just pray. But it's awkward. Yeah, it is awkward. You know why? Because the prayer comes from a place that's not here. Prayer comes from the, the throne room of heaven. In fact, prayer happens in the throne room of heaven. So yes, it always starts awkward because prayer does not fit in this realm. But when you start to pray, then the realm of heaven begins to overlap the realm of time, and bam, it's no longer awkward. So pray. Husbands and wives, you want to turn your marriage around, your family around, or you just want to get closer to God? Just pray together. It doesn't have to be fancy. Prayer is so easy. I know you listen to Steve and I in our big, flowery, elegant prayers. And you think, I don't think I could ever do that. I mean, how often, I can't even tell you how often my prayers are, God, help. That is like the most biblical prayer there is. God, help. So don't forget to move close together spiritually. And then don't forget to move close together financially. Let me break this down a little bit before you panic. I don't mind making you panic, but just never be lazy, work hard, serve the Lord enthusiastically. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. I think, I, I use the word financially here on purpose. When I say the word finance, you think money. When I use the word finance, I think of money and everything it takes to produce it. So I think time 
is a huge financial factor, right? Think about it. If you make $50 an hour, if that's what you value your labor at, then, and you think that's what your time is, and you give me an hour of your time, and you don't bill me $50, you could see if I'd pay it, I guess. Then that's a financial consideration. That's all I'm saying. It's a financial investment. So if I think of it in those terms, think of it this way. My wife leads the kids' church team, and right back there today are some amazing servants who've dedicated hours of their week this week to love on children, to teach them that they're dearly loved and greatly enjoyed, to teach them about a God who's good and loves them and is for them. And so that's a financial investment of time, right? Right? You're just afraid where I'm going to go. Relax. It's fine. I'm not going to be mean to you. Well, I might be annoying, but mean, you know. Have you ever heard someone say to you that the best things in life are free? Go ahead. If you respond, I'll get done quicker. <laughs> the best things in life are free? That's not true. That's not true. Because the best things in life, the most rewarding things in life, require your time. You want a great relationship with your children? You're going to give them a lot of time. You want a great relationship with your wife? You're going to give her a lot of time, or him, your spouse, a lot of time. Keep that in mind. Because I think time is the most precious thing there is in our lives today. In fact, uh, the, a, a few years ago, if you'd have asked me uh, the, like, what was harder to get from people, their time or their money, I would have said yeah, it's definitely harder to get people's time. So what if you move toward each other and you begin to invest in each other and you begin to invest in a, a small group and you begin to give your time? Or you invest in the kids' church program and you begin to give your time. And you begin to pour something into others that's worth so much more than your money. However, James said, if you had the resources to help someone and didn't, you're actually not being very helpful. And so if you have the means to help, to, to step up, to make things possible, not just for you. This is what has to happen in, in churches across America. The ones who, this does not happen, and what I'm about to talk about now, if this doesn't happen in churches across America, they will not exist in 20 years. I don't care if they run 20,000 people. Here's what has to happen. We have to think about the church for our kids. The next generation, we have to think legacy. I am not building, my heart for this building that we're building is not for me. Yes, I'm tired of setting up and tearing down. Sure, I'm lazy, okay? And I'm getting older, so lazy is the choice I prefer to make. But I'm just telling you, this ain't about me. This is about equipping the generation of the, the teenagers that are in this room and the adolescents that are in this room right now so they have a place to learn, to connect, to become the love of God in this community. We have to stop thinking about what makes us comfortable and we have to think about what makes our children's faith secure. So build ordinary faith. 
begins with belonging. We start and we choose to belong. We choose to be together, even though it's not always comfortable, even though it's often inconvenient, even though it costs us our precious time, even though it costs us relationships that we're not sure we want to be in yet. I get it. I, I, oh, if you knew how I got it, you would be like, oh, he gets it. So I want to ask you, <laughs> I believe that in the kingdom, you get your needs met or your needs are met, not by declaring your needs, but by giving what you need. And I, I can't remember the quote exactly. I heard one pastor once say, you'll, you'll never lack in the things you learn to give away. And that's what, that's a way to begin belonging today. By asking yourself, what can I give? What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you're in a relationship here or in your small group or in the church and it got cattywampus. Do you guys know what cattywampus means? All fouled up. How's that? Does that work? What could you give to move on? What could you give to move toward relationship rather than away from it? Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that there aren't problems in our life. There aren't people in our life that need to be a, a little bit further away from us. Okay? Isn't that how life is? People have access to us. My wife has a lot of access to me. Al-Qaeda doesn't have so much. And so, what can I give, though? And all of those things, I can give and still pull toward the relationship. I can, I can come move toward my wife, and I can give her love. I can give her time. I can give her the things that speak love to her. I can also love Al-Qaeda way out there. I can love them. I can support missions. I can, I can somehow try and get the gospel to them. I can pray for them. I can still love them. They're just farther away. And so, sometimes that's how life is. How can you move toward relationship? What can you do that doesn't endanger the person God created and loves and wants you to be? But still, what can I give? Some of you are hurting for relationship. Some of you are hurting for connection. And you want someone to connect with you. So here's how you do that. You connect with someone else. Give what you need. And eventually, in time, or quickly, you will have what you need. Are you worried about your children and grandchildren coming to faith? But your kids won't listen to you anymore? Or your kids, won't, I mean your grandkids won't listen to you anymore? Well, you know what you can do? You can still give what you need. You need your children to hear about Jesus, so you can give hearing about Jesus. And you can step into a kids program. You can do things at your home to love on other people's children. You can support some young family that might could use childcare on occasion so they could go out on a date. There's all kinds of things you could do to give what you need. Is this making sense? So what's the Holy Spirit telling you to give this morning? Step into that. That's what faith is. Isn't that what faith is? Faith is just stepping into the next thing that God gives you. Uh, Laura uh, Torn Wells has a song called Joy in the Morning. 
awesome song, but he has a line in it that says, your faith doesn't even start until your plans fall apart. Some of you, your plans have already fallen apart. And you're sitting there going, I don't know if I have faith. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can get to it. So here, I'm giving you the next thing to do. Give what you need. So simple. Give what you need. You're like, I don't know how to do it. The Holy Spirit is better than Google. So ask him. Holy Spirit, how do I give what I need? Then have something ready to take notes with. And write down what you begin to think about. And give what you need. Let's pray. Worship team. Father, I pray this morning for us as a body. What I've talked about this morning is major. We as believers should be amazing at relationships, but we're not. Because we come together and we want to open our hearts up to each other, and then we get hurt, and then we begin trying to do the Christian life shielded, and it doesn't work. So Lord, I pray this morning for a heart to belong, to be with each other. I pray for the younger generation in this room. And, and they may not fully understand what I'm talking about, or they may not think they're even a part just because they're young. I pray that you'd show them that they are key. They are so important to who we are. I pray that, that you would raise up this generation. I pray they not have the baggage. I'm sorry, Lord, I'm going off, I'm going off the reservation here. I pray they not have the baggage that my generation had about you, the wrong ideas about you. And I pray, Lord, that they would, they would be able to start their place from a deep acceptance by their Heavenly Father, that their vision of God would be more in line to the Father in Luke 15 when the prodigal returned home, that that's how they would think of their Father, as a Father who wants them and wants them to come home. And when they come home, he doesn't punish them. He doesn't criticize them. He immediately throws the robe on their back, the ring on their hand, and immediately declares their sonship and who they are. I pray that you would do that for this generation. I pray that you'd help us to be the kind of church that loves every generation and every people group. Help us to be the church that lights a match in the darkness not one that curses the dark. I pray that you would help every person in this room to take a step toward relationship with each other. Maybe they need to call someone today. Maybe they need to send a text. Maybe they need to go and pray over someone or with someone. But I pray that you would help us to start belonging to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.